All right. Uh, If you take your Bibles and find your way to Galatians chapter 4, we begin not only a new section, but a new chapter, and uh, exciting. it's exciting to, uh, to see what Paul has here for us, and I'm excited to share it with you this morning. I'd like to begin by just uh, pointing out the fact that slavery in the ancient world was of a different kind than we know it to have been in the West during the 17th and 18th centuries. It was not, uh, it w- it was not racial at all, Except, of course, when a conquering nation made slaves of their enemies. Otherwise, it was about somebody indenturing himself to another, either because he owed a debt he couldn't pay or he was facing poverty. Nevertheless, slavery in any era and in any context is the worst possible relationship that anyone can be in if, of course, he is the slave unless it becomes a slave of Christ and his righteousness. You know, the beauty of the gospel is in its power to transform us into new creations and even the very sphere of our lives. We live in Christ now and with a love for the Son that compels us to serve him as his willing slaves. Beloved, that is... that. That such a distasteful concept of slavery can be redeemed, so to speak, and used to describe our 100% devotion to Christ is a credit to the transforming power of the gospel. And the paradox of it all is that only as slaves of Christ are we truly free to love God as we ought. Now this morning, Paul introduces another concept to capture our relationship to God Uh, from God's point of view, and that is, whereas slave-master emphasizes our utter devotion to God, sonship, daughters included, emphasizes God's devotion to us. We Christians enjoy not only freedom in Christ from bondage to sin and the law, but the status of sonship and with full rights that go with that. Once enemies of God, now we're sons. What a remarkable turn of events is conversion. And on this Lord's Day, I want to encourage you by rehearsing with you the the great benefits that come with sonship. Before we consider them, we need to jump back into the flow of Paul's argument. We're in chapter 4, looking at verses 1 to 7, and Paul contrasts the enslavement that came with life under the law with sonship under the promise. So let's get into it again, and we begin with the illustration of adoption in the first two verses. Paul says, now I say as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. Paul illustrates the theological point that he, that he will make in verse 3 with the well-known and important custom of adoption in the Roman Empire. There are three or were three major uh, practices that represent the nationalities under the Roman Empire, the Greek, the, the Jew, and the Italian. All had their own adoption practices. And as to which one Paul had in mind here, it's really difficult to determine. But because his audience was primarily Gentile, 
It's likely that he had either the Greek or the Roman practice in mind. But it makes little difference which of those two he used, since they differ only as to the specific age that a child became an adult and received his inheritance. In Greek adoption, it was 18. In Roman adoptions, well, it's a bit more complicated. You were an adult at 14, but not until sometime after 20 and at the discretion of the adopted father was the young adult given full rights and responsibilities of adulthood. This this may be what Paul means in verse 2 where he says, until the date set by the father. And we understand this well enough. I think in America, adulthood is at 18, at which point we can fight in wars, vote, and rent a hotel room. But we must be 21 in order to drink alcohol and 25 to rent a car. I should point out, just as an exception and just as a a quick aside, that adults could also be adopted in the ancient world. If if you've ever seen uh, Sam Zimbalist's 1959 production, Ben-Hur, about the Jewish prince who is betrayed and sent into slavery by a Roman friend in first century Jerusalem, only to regain his freedom and then take back revenge, you would know that Judah Ben-Hur, played by Charlton Heston, is adopted in the movie by the high-ranking Roman official Quintius Arius after saving his life. But more commonly, minors were adopted, and this is the context of Paul's, Paul's illustration. Children who hadn't yet reached the age of adulthood remained under the care of what Paul calls here guardians and stewards under the, uh, until, the, until the, they came of age. Now, the guardian was really different than the pedagogue back in chapter 3. The pedagogue was to follow the orders of the guardian, really, and care for the child in his everyday activities. The guardians had charge over the entire life of the child. They were responsible uh, for him. In fact, their responsibility was far greater, and and they had uh, power that was more sweeping than anybody. The steward was necessary only if the child stood to receive an inheritance and would manage his estate until he was old enough to take it over. Adoption was much more important in the first century then than it ever was in American society, certainly today, and therefore far more frequent. So to get the Galatians ready for his teaching in verse 3 with uh, this practice of adoption, Paul focuses attention in this illustration on the boy's status as a minor. The boy's status as a minor. As long as he is heir as long as the heir is a child, rather, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. So the child is the legal heir. He's got everything coming to him, but until he comes of age, he can enjoy none of it. And his status is, no, no, uh, is really no different, practically speaking, than that of a slave. Huh. How does that work? Well, he has... Very limited freedom. He's hedged about by all kinds of rules and restrictions. He cannot just do what he wants, when he wants, where he wants. He's allowed to be in only certain approved places and enjoy certain approved activities. His time and meals and sleep, recreation and education are all scheduled and decided by the guardian. 
The guardians ordered his world. The bottom line here is he was not his own master. In fact, the guardians and managers, who were themselves slaves of the household, had more freedom than the boy himself. They certainly had seniority over him. He had to listen to them and to mind their instructions. So life for the boy, at times then, could be a drudgery. Now, I have to digress for a moment and say that this kind of upbringing I think would have had more would have made more sense to American citizens about a hundred years ago, when kids were kids and not treated like adults, when they didn't question parental authority and and were expected to be obedient and respectful, to eat their vegetables, to do their homework, finish their house chores, and help clean the yard on Saturdays. Kids today have been recreated by society, haven't they? To have a sense of entitlement. Some states even give them independent rights apart from the knowledge of their parents to make medical decisions about their own bodies with the help and confidentiality of public school officials, no less. As a result, many of them are lazy. They lack motivation. They have much more freedom than kids, than kids of yesteryear, which is to their detriment. Never in American history has Paul's command in Ephesians uh, 4, verse 6, been more necessary for Christians to heed, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6, 4, rather. Contrary to popular belief, at least in many states in this country, training a child even uh, to eventually become an adult incorporates both biblical counsel and physical correction. Both are necessary to fulfill God's command. Well, just an aside, be that as it may, we're focusing on Roman adoption and the fact that the status of the child is not much different than that of a slave until he comes of age. And he needs guardians and managers to help him get there. That was the point of having guardians and and managers. Now, we come to the truth Paul teaches in verse 3. He's laid the illustration. It's time to teach the truth. He wants to talk about what it means to be spiritual sons of God in verse 3. And the way he begins allows the obvious connection to the illustration. He says, so we too. That is to say, just like children were under the guardians, so we too were this way. How is that? Well, that is to say, in the same way that kids were under the guardianship, so true believing Israel was under the guardianship of the law. True believing Israelites under the law knew only an immature faith, a childlike kind of faith. I don't mean the faith they exercised. I mean the faith that they were in, the whole old covenant faith was an immature faith. Paul says, when we were children, we were held in bondage under the elementary principles of the world. Now, verse 3 is not easy to decipher, I have to tell you right up front, and it, it has, there's really no consensus among New Testament scholars as to the phrase elementary principles. So I want you to think through this with me. I don't think it's that complicated at all if you pay attention to the context, and I want to explain it to you. 
It's been interpreted, that phrase, elementary principles, variously to mean things like demons and the spirit world or pagan religions, even constellations together with four elements that make up the planet, fire, water, earth, and wind. We haven't any time to refute all of these, so I want to tell you what I believe Paul's talking about, and I believe he's talking about the law. That's it, just the law. And the reason is that it makes the most sense according to the context. Let me show you what I mean. As you know, Paul's been refuting up to this point the Judaizers and their message that salvation is by faith in Christ plus observance of the law, which is truly a false gospel. What's more, he spent some time in chapter 3 defining the primary and secondary purposes of the law, which together only serve the promise of Messiah's future work of redemption. And in verse 10 of chapter 4, Paul seems to make reference to Levitical practices that the Judaizers had sucked the Galatians into, their meticulous observance of days and months and seasons and years. Now, all that together suggests that Paul has the law in mind, and specifically that it was never meant to save anyone. Rather, it was meant to prepare God's people, Israel, for Messiah's coming. The phrase elemental principles, therefore, has to do with life under the Old Covenant. The practices of an immature faith, a young faith. The next phrase, of the world, clinches this understanding. How so? Where, well, where, where a lot of worthy New Testament scholars go astray is in their interpretation of, of this phrase, Uh, of the world that goes with elementary principles, elementary principles of the world. They give it too broad a meaning. Hence their suggestions of pagan religions and astrology and demons and so on. It incorporates the world uh, in essence. But again, the immediate context is our guide. If Paul is concerned with life under the law of the Old Covenant, then world has to have a restricted sense, and it does. Here it means worldly, not the world. Worldly. Now, not worldly in the sense of sinful, but in the sense of physical, as opposed to spiritual. Remember, we're talking about an immature faith. This is physical. It is of this earth this earthly realm as opposed to heaven. We would read the entire clause, worldly elemental principles. Now think of it this way. Israel's practices were an expression of an immature faith that was restricted to their physical world and and at the most foreshadowed the faith of the New Covenant, that was a spiritual faith by nature. Let me give you some examples. The tabernacle. Do you remember the tabernacle? Moses was to make a physical copy of the heavenly sanctuary, right? Physical copy of the heavenly sanctuary. So what he made was a tangible, visible structure complete with holy of holies, holy place, a curtain that separated the two, an altar, a laver, priests, high priests, and so on. 
The writer to the book of Hebrews calls that sanctuary in chapter 9, verse 1, a sanctuary of the world or a worldly sanctuary. It was just a physical copy of the original spiritual sanctuary. But in the New Covenant, the sanctuary where God dwells is not a structure, certainly not this building. It's you and me. And it is the body of Christ together. As the book of Revelation explains, we are the spiritual sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. And together we will in heaven someday, according to the book of Hebrews, we will remain the spiritual sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. That's what John saw and that's what Moses saw. So the grammatical construction of Galatians 4.3 is the same as Hebrews 9.1, which gives us the, the precedent to translate the word, the word cosmos in this verse not as world, but as worldly, physical. Therefore, we understand that the worldly elemental principles of the Mosaic law and the Old Covenant presented an immature faith, which was worship restricted to a location could only worship in the temple, in Jerusalem. Day of Atonement, sacrifice had to be made there. Restriction to, uh, restricted to blood and smoke. Restricted to the manage, manage, management of the ordained priests. The New Covenant believers, however, <clears throat> are restricted by none of these things because we have a mature faith. We belong to a mature faith. Paul wants the Galatians to see that what the Judaizers wanted to strap them with, essentially life under the law, represented an, an, an immature faith that was designed purely to give way to a mature faith of the new covenant, where worship would be in spirit and in truth, not restricted to one location where the Holy Spirit would indwell each individual believer permanently, where Jesus is superior to the high priest and the sacrifice and the sacrificial system, where the dietary laws and circumcision and, and strict adherence to the law in all its respects was no longer needed because we have a mature faith. All that became a spiritual reality in Christ. He's everything we need to commune with God and worship him rightly, to be confident that our sins are forgiven, that we have a great high priest who has been tempted in all ways, yet without sin. The faith in the new covenant is founded in a full and complete revelation of God. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament types of Messiah. The mature faith that finds the fulfillment of the law in the realization of the promise also be, uh, believes that it is <clears throat> under Christ's law of love and delights in that. In Christ's new covenant, uh, in Christ, new covenant members enjoy freedom and a new responsibility. Now, I believe that this view makes the most sense. First of all, it would have communicated well to the Jewish believers in Galatia who grew up with the law. They would have easily seen Paul's point that the law prepared believing Israel for a mature faith to come. They would also see how the law guided and managed even unbelieving Jews, only in a different way. 
just as rebellious children who receive stricter treatment by the guardians to ready them for adulthood and the privileges that go with that, so unbelieving Jews would only chafe against the guardrails of the law. And it would show them their sin and its consequences and point them to Messiah. Sadly, many of them redefine the law without the condemning consequences for themselves. Second of all, our interpretation in verse 3 would have made quite a lot of sense to Gentile Christians in Galatia too. Because while they were not acquainted with the law and the sacrificial system and all of that, They were, at the time Paul wrote this letter, hearing it for the first time wrongly applied to them by the Judaizers. So Paul had the opportunity to explain the true intent of the law and why it was not fit for mature faith in Christ. For those who have moved from slavery to sonship don't need this anymore. He talks about that now in verses 4 and 5. How have we attained spiritual sonship. Well, what what has Paul said so far? With the help of the Roman practice of adoption, he illustrates how the law has no more than a preparatory nature. It prepared believing Israelites in an edifying and sanctifying way by guarding them and managing their immature faith until Messiah came. And also, It prepared unbelieving Jews in a condemning way that would direct them to the promise of the work of Messiah. As a child or a child heir, they are no more than slaves in the household until they come of age. So both Old Testament believers and unbelievers, including Paul, were slaves to the law the former to an immature faith and the latter to a condemning legalism until the time came when the former would come into the mature faith of the new covenant and the latter would come into faith in Jesus Christ. And that brings us to verse 4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Paul speaks of the fullness of time here, which has a pregnant meaning, The fullness of time means at the right time, according to God's sovereign plan, the Son invaded history. It was at that time that the law served its purpose and became obsolete. The fullness of time also points to the perfect time in the development of human history for the mature faith to come on the scene. For example, Greek had become the universal language of the world by the time Messiah came to earth. Number two, there was the Pax Romana, which means that the Mediterranean world enjoyed relative peace for more than a hundred plus years because of Roman rule. Number three, there was a road system that included major highways that linked Rome to the remotest parts of its empire and made travel much easier and great commerce which was not possible before. And here's another one that we might take special note of. I want to emphasize this one. The culture was ready to hear the truth. The peace that dominated the the empire didn't make it any less of an immoral place to live. And James Boyce explains in his commentary, and I think he's right, uh, this, quote, 
the world was sunk in a moral abyss so low that even the pagans cried out against it and that spiritual hunger was everywhere evident. And it was a perfect time for the coming of Christ and for the early expansion of the Christian gospel, end quote. I love that. It's a great observation. I think that's an important observation for us because we live, I think, in such a time. There's a parallel here. It seems as though our American culture cannot possibly get any worse than it is. But could it be that in this abysmal moral decline of ours, some unbelievers have become hopeless and are crying out against it? I think so. I think that such a cesspool of immorality in our day is bound to motivate some to revolt against it and develop in them a hunger for spiritual truth, just as it did in Paul's day. Are we ready for a, with a response? Rather than hide from it in the confines of the church building, huddled closely with the saints, we need to wade through it with the gospel. Well, now Paul shows the Galatians in the last three verses of our text that with the consummation of the new covenant in the blood of Christ, the blood of the covenant, how God bestowed upon us the status of sonships. And this is the part that I've been looking forward to rehearsing with you. Um, How did God do this? Well, first of all, God redeemed us. First part of verse 5, Paul says that the purpose for sending his son was that he might redeem those who were under the law. So the Son had to become like us in order that we would become like him. And this is really the point of mentioning that Jesus was born of a woman under the law. He was qualified for the work of redemption and bought back Jews who were slaves under the law and Gentiles as well who were slaves to their own fallen conscience being a law unto themselves. What does the thought of God buying you back out of slavery to your sin and fallen wills that he might love you and have an intimate relationship with you do for you? What does that do for you? How does that impact you? Worse than the cheating prostitute that was Hosea's wife, we went whoring after other gods of this world rejecting the one true God who nevertheless commanded his love on us, bought us back out of slavery to sin, and promised never to leave us or abandon us, but to love us all the more and commune with us. What a tremendous truth that is, what hope it brings. And we ought to remind ourselves of it especially in those dark times that seem to come upon us more quickly in these end times. What else? Well, God has adopted us, second part of verse 5, that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters. You know, God could have left us on the auction block of depravity as a slave to our sin, but he delivered us from it, delivered you from it. And he did more than just deliver you as well. He put royal robes on you, crown on your head, made you co-heirs with Christ. 
redemption, set free, set free from bondage to sin, but adoption made us members of God's family with full rights as sons to receive a great inheritance. What does that thought, the thought of God adopting you into his family, into his household, do for you? He not only saved you from his wrath, but he gave you his, his name. Do you honor his name with your life? Or do, you, do your actions sully the name of Christ? It's an important question. God also claimed us as dependents. In verse 6, I'm using the word dependent to refer to those minors who are dependent on their legal guardians and whom we support financially. If you have any, you list them on your tax returns. Get back up. A break, right? Well, in, in, in a spiritual sense, we Christians become God's dependents. He supports us and we depend on him. Paul says, verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. I love how Paul shows that the Trinity is involved in our redemption and adoption. God the Father sends both God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that our salvation might be complete. Through Christ, we have the position as sons. And through the indwelling Holy Spirit, we experience the reality of that position. Now, the idea of dependence is in the fact that we are not only able, but desire to cry out to God, our Father. Crying out to God had to have brought to the minds of the Galatian believers the champions of righteousness that we call the psalmists who cried out to God in the midst of their suffering for deliverance and protection. As we read this morning to open up our worship service, surely they were in Paul's mind when he wrote this. What does the thought of God being your refuge do for you? What would you be without the hand of the good sovereign in your life? More than this, Paul uses Abba, Father. That's an Aramaic word for, it's a diminutive um, <clears throat> structure. It means dad or daddy, more informal. But it, it's used to emphasize the intimacy that we have with our heavenly father. And we feel it the most, I think, when we pray out of the need of the moment, do we not? As any child, when threatened, would call out to his trusted parents, are you convinced that God, your Father, hears you? That he desires to answer you? That he delights when you cry out to him and depend upon him? Do you make holy retreat to God our refuge? God made us his heirs as well, verse 7. This last great privilege of sonship comes in this verse. Paul says, therefore you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Being an heir, I think, is plain enough. We understand that. We have a great inheritance, a better country. God is waiting for us that he might reward us accordingly. But all that is ours now, and we enjoy it to the full we will enjoy it to the full when our redemption is fully complete in heaven someday. 
the most mature condition of our faith possible. What does the thought of God reserving for you a great inheritance do for you? Let me suggest three ways that it should impact you. Three ways. God's promise to us as heirs should call us to live the faith responsively and aggressively. During the age of the Old Testament covenant, when the Mosaic law was the order of the day, Israel was like a child who was promised a great inheritance through Abraham's seed, Messiah. Until mature faith came, that is, until Messiah came and fulfilled the law, and the anticipated promise became reality for the Old Testament saints, they were hedged in by the law's restrictions, as we pointed out already. Theirs was a simple life of faith. Everything was spelled out for them. I don't know if you realize this, how basic and easy this was. How to live, when to do this or that, when they could and couldn't go someplace or do something, how to sacrifice, how to maintain good relations with one's fellow Israelite, how to make restitution if they offended a fellow Israelite, and so on. In this sense, life under the law was an immature faith, a faith that lived in the shadow of the cross. And as simple as this life of faith was, it wasn't complicated. Everything spelled out to the minutest detail. It was also laborious and tedious and even dangerous. As Old Testament believers had to be careful not to transgress the law in any way for fear of God's judgment. You know, breaking the law then could be either expensive or in some instances even lethal. Now, As we mentioned before, for believing Israel, for whom the law was initially given, the law was their delight. Make no mistake about that. David, Moses, Daniel, the prophets. It reminded them of just how holy God is and how sinful they are in comparison and how faithful God is to promise them the coming Messiah in whom alone is found eternal life. But make no mistake, this time of the law was to manage an immature faith. It left no room for any variation in in how one worshipped. Worship had to be in the temple only. You had to be clean before you go in. Worship had to be through a priest mediation, accompanied with smoke and blood of a perfect substitute. Afterward, the confirmation from priests that God accepted and forgave you all kinds of different sacrifices for every occasion. We've discussed the stipulations and the restrictions that believing Israel were subject to until Messiah came and fulfilled and, and, and fulfilled it in his own life and work, lifting these restrictions and giving true believers freedom to boldly approach the throne of grace individually in his name to manage their own sanctification, to worship with the body of Christ anywhere they choose, and without having to be concerned about sacrifices and priests and sheep, because Jesus is now their perfect sacrifice and their great high priest. Faith under the law was an immature was of an immature status. And it became mature under the new covenant promise. And I might add, much more difficult to live. Listen very carefully. Much more difficult to live. How's that? 
Mature faith requires more responsibility on the part of the believer. Remember, we have more revelation than the Old Testament saints did, and with that revelation comes a greater responsibility. Not only that, but New Covenant believers have to be more discretionary in the way they apply God's commands and principles, the degree to which they follow through with God's principles and commands, and they are they need to be consistent in their obedience, that they seek God's wisdom. And all this is your responsibility. You manage your own faith. For example, confession is commanded, but no one knows your heart. You must be sure to follow through with it. Giving is a command, but you determine in the privacy of your own home how much you give to God, no longer 10%, but you give, and it must be sacrificial and joyful. God sees the heart. Ananias and Sapphira didn't give that way, although they gave the appearance that they had. And you see the consequences. You're responsible to make things right with your brother, to rebuke him if he is in sin, as well as to ask him for forgiveness if you've offended him, not to ignore those kinds of situations. You must keep your conscience clear and sensitive. You have to police your own thoughts and actions. Robert Murray McShane, great Puritan, said, What a man is on his knees before God, that is, that he is, and nothing more. What, are, what you are in the dark on your knees before God is who you are and God sees and no one else does but you and God no one is prodding you to act righteously in the dark when you're alone with your thoughts you have to take the initiative to kill the lust of the flesh you see how how much more responsible and in, and in fact more difficult it, it is to live under the promise it is a mature faith. Number two, God's promise to us as heirs should motivate us to fight the good fight and run the race well. I want to be careful not to press Paul's illustration beyond his intent. Its main purpose is to show how the law, like guardians and managers, kept believing Israel, practicing her immature faith until faith became mature with the inauguration of the new covenant. But I wonder if Paul's reference to the child's owning his inheritance while at the same time not being able to enjoy it has some application for us as it did for believing Israel. They believe the promise of eternal life in Messiah from afar and they were saved. They also knew that they had an inheritance waiting for them and they longed for it. Someday it would be reality for them. They know it now. What about those with us who are in a mature faith? I would say that we too, like Abraham, look for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. And because that's true, we, like they, can live for the better country now and not be taken in by by the world in which we live. The, the writer shows this application clearly enough, I think, in Hebrews chapter 11. In verses 13 to 16, he says, 
And all these died in faith, Old Testament believers, Old Te- uh, uh, believers of the Old Covenant. They all died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country which they left, meaning the world, although figuratively this is Egypt, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And he has for us. Do you long for it? Does it show in your steps, in your thoughts, in your decisions, in your choices? As you wait in line at, at, at a grocery store. If you really trust in the coming inheritance that is ours through faith, according to, to this passage, you will long for that new covenant promise so much that you live as though you are a stranger in this place. You don't get too comfortable here. The writer says that if that is true of you, you will make it clear that you are seeking a country of your own just by the way you speak longingly of it in other ways as well. Finally, number three, God promises, God's promise to us as heirs should greatly affect the way we make disciples. Let's not forget that unrighteous Israel also lived under the law and were not so much led by the hand in their immature faith because they didn't have any faith, but rather they were directed in their sinfulness to see their condemned status and to the future work of Messiah as their only hope. So we describe this secondary principle of the law We described it before in chapter 3. It was to bring their sins to their attention as well as to their condemnation or, or their condemned status before God, leaving them no other sane choice but to embrace the future work of Messiah. And as I say, sadly, many of them chose to redefine the law for themselves as as a means of meriting favor with God for salvation. What a travesty. But be that as it may, the promise of salvation in Messiah was always before them, and it was for them. This is the general call of the gospel. Peter makes this point very clear in his evangelistic message to unbelieving Jews shortly after Pentecost in Acts 2. He says in verse 39, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. The promise is the Abrahamic covenant. It is the promise of Messiah, right? And he says that promise is for you and your children. He has in mind Israel first, the Abrahamic promise, is for them and their children. And he says so in his evangelistic message to them that was always true since the inception of the nation but then second Peter also includes Gentiles in the same breath all those who are far away as many as the Lord our God will call to himself that's us 
we take our cue from Peter here when it comes to evangelizing the lost, any lost person, then we can assure that person that God's promise of eternal life is there for the asking. And he would simply need only to believe it. Let's not forget about unbelieving Gentiles, all pagans, even though they were not privileged to receive God's law. We're still measured by it from God's point of view, right? We know that. God's law is law throughout the world. It doesn't have different ones. It's the standard of perfection. And it stands as his perfect standard for everyone without exception. Paul says in Romans 2, verses 12 to 15, that when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively perform the requirements of the law, these, though not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience testifying, and their thoughts alternately accusing them or else defending them. What a great incentive for us to evangelize when we are able to hold out the great promise of, of an eternal inheritance that comes with full redemption. Nowhere can anyone find anything comparable to God's grace. Nowhere. Adoption. God is your father. We are his children. He is the God of light. And we must, too, live as children of light. And when we do, we love God as we ought and we love neighbor as we ought. And we have a great message of promise to give. And may we give it without hesitation and clearly as we, as, as we have received it from God. And our Father in heaven, we are grateful for Paul's words here to the Galatians and to us by extension, we pray that we would be encouraged to know that we are indeed adopted into the family of God with great privilege, but also with great responsibility. It is our prayer, O oh God, that we would be indeed responsible and that we would live our faith to the world to show the great promise that is ours in Christ and that can be theirs as well if they repent and believe. We pray, Father, for, uh, for our, our continued dependence upon the Holy Spirit and your grace to achieve these great goals for your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of the church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.